We continue our exposition today of Luke's Gospel, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9. Uh, verses 49 and 50 will be the uh, sermon text, but I will read down to verse 56 uh, that we would get the context. Uh, we continue from where we left off last time, which was two weeks ago, when we saw the disciples squabbling over who would be greatest in the kingdom. And now we continue the same theme here in the text that we now come to. Luke 9 and verses 49 and 50, though I will read to verse 56. Let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's word. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. <coughs> and Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and set messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray briefly for the preaching. O holy God of heaven, how we come with great dependence on thee for the preaching of the word. The minister declares his own insufficiency in his flesh, to preach anything edifying. And so we pray that it would be your spirit who would blow upon the congregation through the preaching of the word, even as we heard of the spirit's work in Ezekiel 37 earlier, that he would blow now on the congregation, that he would move through the preaching of the word, through the hearts of the people of God, that the mouth of the minister would be open wide to proclaim the excellencies of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it would be Christ and not the minister who would have the preeminence today. O oh God, may Christ increase in our midst. May we have a greater sense of the Savior through the preaching of the word, and have a greater sense as well of the love he has for the body of Christ as well. So open our eyes now to behold these wondrous things that we see in the law of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people of God, factionalism and a party spirit are a tremendous evil in the church of Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, this began with denominationalism. No, it certainly did not. It preceded denominationalism, for it is found from the very fall of man. You find it here in the disciples themselves before there were any denominations. Later on, we'll consider it was found in the time of Moses as well, when Joshua came and declared that only certain uh, men should prophesy in the name of the Lord. This is part of our sin nature, and this is something we need sanctified out of us. We remember that there is no factionalism in heaven whatsoever. There are no divisions found in heaven. Instead, 
all are one as Father and Son are one as Jesus prayed for in the high priestly prayer. And so when we pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, we are praying as well for the unity of the body of Jesus Christ, that all who profess the true religion would be as one. And I will just confess to you as, as your pastor, as your minister, this has been constantly a great um, area of struggle for myself, an area where I have had to repent often of, an area where I believe the Lord is sanctifying me. Because when it does come to true brethren who profess the true religion, who preach the true gospel, we are not to impede the work that they do for Christ. We are to share what unity we can with them. For we do have, we will find, a true spiritual union with all who are born again of the Spirit. And we are to rejoice that Christ is proclaimed by them when they, when they proclaim Christ of a truth. That such brethren who truly know Christ, even if we disagree on some doctrines, are not against us, but they're actually for us. Because really, who are they for ultimately? Our common Lord. They do their ministry if they truly believe the word of God and preach the true gospel for Christ, the head of his body, the church. At the same time, we will find the word of God says we are to beware those who name Christ falsely. This isn't an open door to wolves. We are not to be close at all to those who say they're Christians, but are, are those who deny the Lord in some way and avoid a false ecumenism and those who deny the Trinity, those who deny the gospel and so on. I'll, I'll cover some of that as our last heading. Much wisdom is needed, but Christ supplies that as well. Well, that said then, with that introduction from our text, our theme will be to embrace those who truly proclaim Christ. Embrace those who truly proclaim Christ. And God willing, we will do so under three heads. One is context, second is doctrine, and third is caution, as we look at caveats. So first, our first heading, context. Well, previously, you remember uh, that the disciples, and Luke recounts this, squabbled over who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Christ told them that the least in the kingdom, those who make themselves as a little child, not in understanding, right, but in malice, those who make themselves as a little child shall be counted great in the kingdom. And he commended to them humility and service as the means to greatness in the kingdom. That one who seeks to be greatest in the kingdom is one who seeks to be servant of all. And Jesus Christ gave us himself the pattern for this, right? He said that uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, right? Jesus Christ shows us what greatness is, which is the King of glory coming down from heaven, not that we would serve him first, but that he would first serve us, even washing our feet, but even washing our head with his own blood. And as you know, by now, Luke is in the habit, and it's marvelous the way he weaves this gospel together. He often likes to string themes together. Not necessarily that they are chronological, but they are thematic. And so this theme of humility continues in our text and the one to follow. And in our text here, we find the disciples forbidding a man from serving Christ. In the following text, which I read, James and John are going to desire the destruction of a village of Samaritans. 
And so what we find in the disciples at the time is a kind of self-centeredness, a kind of zeal without knowledge, and a pride in themselves. And certainly this is not a flattering portrayal at all of the disciples. There, is, uh, there are a couple of encouragements in that, I think. Boys and girls, I think for you children, remember that scriptures are God-breathed. It is not a flattering whitewashing of the lives of God's people, even his prophets and apostles. It is honest about the sinfulness of even the so-called heroes of the faith. And that's an encouragement for you, boys and girls, to remember that the scriptures are God's word and not man's. There's only one hero in the Bible, and that is Jesus Christ, son of God, who alone is sinless and blameless. And that's an encouragement as well to recognize for yourself, no perfect man, no perfect woman exists. We all need Christ as our savior. Even ministers and elders need Christ. All of us need him as our righteousness. And we find that even here with the first 12. So with that said, here in our text, in the 49th verse, John reports to Jesus, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. And so we find here another man casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. We're not sure how this man, who he was, or how he came to know of Christ and how he came to serve Christ in this way. Some speculate that maybe he was a follower of John the Baptist, but we cannot know for sure. Uh, And we know John at this point is dead, and maybe he had come to follow Christ instead, but we don't know for sure. What is known, however, is important enough and sufficient enough. This man had professed Christ. He did true miracles in Christ's name, and the Holy Spirit was pleased to work through him. And so we know that this must have been a true work of Christ through the man, because we remember when Jesus was accused of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub, he said that is not possible, for a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so these bare facts shed light on the man's work as a true work of God being done through him. And evidently, Christ's disciples somehow, apart from consultation with Jesus, uh, learned of this man's labors. And they sent him, so to speak, a cease and desist order. Stop it. We are the Lord's apostles, and we forbid you from doing this. Why? Well, John says he was not with us. He was not with us as he had defined it, as he had defined being with them, which is really, in a way, being geographically associated with them and their circle. But later on, Jesus is going to give a very different definition of what it means to be with us. Merely being in the same band or tribe is not the definition that Christ uses at all. And so we'll come to that in a bit. But John then reports the incident to Jesus after the fact. And I think that in itself is worthy of some consideration. We don't know for sure why it is that John reports the incident to Christ. However, 
I think that we can uh, use a couple of sanctified reasons that we might know from experience and word of God without imputing these as the reasons. We can study these reasons, too, that I have before you to understand how we are to deal with situations we run into. And the first reason he may have come before the Lord and, and mentioned this is perhaps he had a bit of a troubled conscience. Maybe this is not something I ought to have done. And his conscience had bothered him uh, in a sense, and he comes to the Lord. You know, later on, even as we've been reading his first epistle, John manifests a very tender conscience. And perhaps he wondered if I, have, I should not have done this thing. What we have to recognize, though, uh, and it's a good thing when conscience troubles us after the fact. However, what we ought to do is we ought to always first consult with the Lord before we rush into things so that we are not asking for permission later, right? The, the way of the world is to do something and then beg for forgiveness after the fact, and they count this a virtue. That's not a virtue to the Christian. The Christian always comes to the Lord first without being rash in any matter. And one thing you find often in the disciples early on is they do not seek Christ's counsel very much, and they are very autonomous, Last time, they squabbled about who would be greatest in the kingdom away from him. In a sense, you can tell their conscience, as we considered it, is probably thinking this is not a conversation we ought to have in the sight of God. This time, they forbade a man from the ministry without seeking Jesus first. What do we learn? Brethren, we are to consult Christ's will from his Bible in every matter. You're actually going to find that they could have found this out from the scriptures that they were not to do this kind of thing. But we, uh, that said, are not to be rash in our actions, displease him, and then find later on, I ought not to have done this thing uh, out of the word of God. And I think ministers and elders may observe here that the disciples acted as little bishops, as little popes, as ecclesiastical tyrants, asserting themselves rather than Christ as king and head of the church. And we, elders, brothers, can forget that the church is not ours. And it is uh, not ours to dispose of uh, as we wish. And we can do things very rashly without inquiring of the will of the Lord first in every matter. This is the heart of prelacy, isn't it? And this is why we pray, even as we will at our session meeting, that we uh, constitute ourselves in the name of Christ, who alone is king and head of the church. And so elders are to remember this as well. Now, the second reason that John may have brought this to Christ's attention is more troubling, perhaps, which is, and I think we have a sense that this can happen, that he felt as though he would get the Lord's commendation. Look at what I done, right? It's almost like, uh, boys and girls, the cat who brings the dead bird to your feet, right? Look at what I've done. You should be proud of me. And at this time, it seems very clear that John seems to have been filled with a zeal without knowledge, which is why I read the next text as well. The next text, right, we find him and James saying, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? But he turned, that is, Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, ye know not what manner of spirit you are of. So John was very zealous for the Lord, brethren. But what we have to be aware of is that his at the time was zeal without knowledge. Romans 10.2, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And what 
we must be aware of, brethren, is that zeal for God can sometimes be sinful if it is not zeal according to knowledge. Proverbs 19.2 Also that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. And he that hasteth with his feet sinneth. The reality is we can greatly and grievously sin in the service of Christ. And we have to be very aware of that truth. When zeal arises in us, we must check our zeal according to the word of God. What spirit ought I to have when I minister or I rebuke? What is it I ought to do according to the word of God, even if I am filled with zeal for God? Right? Jesus actually warned us that there are those who are zealous for God. The time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. John 16.2 In other words, there are men and women who are greatly deceived that they are doing the work of God in any matter, zealous for it, but are actually displeasing God. And so all service to God Zeal, blind zeal is not commended. It must be according to the word of God. And so both of these things, both of these options that I've laid before you are remedied how? By going to the word of God. By going to the Bible. Our sinful nature is prone, brethren, to think anything we do for God, if it is sincere, if it is full of zeal, is pleasing to God. We've considered this long in the doctrine of worship, haven't we? But also in our text, the same could be said of the doctrine of ecclesiology or of evangelism. In in every doctrine, the same can be said. All service is to be done according to the word of God. And if I do anything according uh, in the service of God, you must come to me and say, according to what word, pastor? And if you do anything according to the uh, for God, I can ask you according to what word, brother or sister? Whatever you do, you must inquire with the Lord. So many will say, I think the Lord wants me to do this or that, or that the Lord doesn't really care about this or that. Really? Have you inquired in the book? That's how you know. Now, I do, don't want to blunt zeal if you have it. Zeal for the Lord is good. It is commended. He actually says he spews out who? The lukewarm. Right? Zeal is good. And this is a warning to us if we think that uh, he commends a lack of zeal. That's not what he's doing. Phineas, you remember that great example of zeal for God. He was, the Bible says, zealous for my sake among them in Numbers 25. But what's the difference between Phineas's zeal and the disciples' zeal? The Lord through Moses gave Phineas instruction. And he was to slay those who were joined unto Baal Peor. Phineas took the instruction and was zealous for the Lord according to knowledge. Brethren, the warning is we may go to Jesus as John did saying, look what I did in thy service. And instead of getting what we imagine is well done, good and faithful servant, we may get the rebuke of ye know not what manner of spirit you're of. And this is what we have to be mindful of. Uh, We always think that whatever we do in the name of God is going to get the commendation Check the Bible to see if it is so. When we are also zealous for Christ, or we believe we are for his service, we also need to ask, 
if it is God's honor that is on our mind or our own. Oftentimes our zeal is not for Christ and his name, but it is really to make a name for ourselves or it is to show the world that it is us who is doing great things. Well, we, won't, we don't know for sure why John came to Jesus, but I think these two possibilities um, that we've explored, we can find key principles in them that our zeal is to be checked by the word before we express zeal. We know this much, though, that a factious spirit was found in the disciples. We saw a factious spirit last time, right? They were trying to elevate themselves above each other. Um, and now we find that they were thinking that they alone truly served Christ. And they alone were truly with him. And the one of the dangers of factionalism I want to warn you of that we see in this text is a loss of our sight. A loss of our sight. A loss of sight of what Christ came into the world to do. Not to elevate ourselves, not to elevate our denomination, not to elevate our congregation. No, he said it in verse 56. The son of man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Right? And this is what they completely neglected to see when they forbid this other man or forbade this other man from doing his work. What was the man who was casting out demons doing in Christ's name? He was saving lives that were being destroyed by Satan, wasn't he? Freeing them of their bondage to sin, which is what we have long seen is what is pictured here in this uh, uh, casting out of demons of these unclean spirits. And this is the sad effect of sectarianism, brethren. Rather than praise God that children of God are being loosed of their bondage through the work of Christ's church, even outside of our quarter, rather than praise God that Christ is at work in this man, all we can think of, all they could think of is, this man is not with us and we must stop him. Brethren, we have to beware of this problem in our own hearts it's close to all of us. I think the thing is here, we see it, it is found even in the so-called best of us, isn't it? You find it here in the early apostles, in the apostles here. I know it's close to my own, as I have said. And even within a single denomination, oftentimes party spirits erupt, don't we? If you've been in the RPCNA for any length of time, you'll hear of the blue bloods and the, and the, and the confessionalists or the covenanters or, or whatever, and you will start to classify men according to party. And this is something that we are often guilty of. And as I've said, I'm often guilty of myself. And we don't see the good that the Lord does in men who differ from us, perhaps on a point here or there. And instead, we are now a house divided against ourselves. And how can it stand? And so, brethren, this is a very searching text indeed. And let us now next then consider how Jesus responds to John in our second heading, which is doctrine. Well, John had said that the man was not with us. But Jesus said in response, forbid him not. And this is his doctrine. For he that is not against us is for us. If one is not against the work of the gospel, not against Christ, he is not just not against us. You have to think of him as for us. Uh, essentially, we are working together on the same common cause. This man is on our side because he is not against us. 
And so we are taught here by the Lord not to draw the circle of Christian laborers too tightly. All who are of Christ are on our side, even if they are separated from us ecclesiastically. Maybe they're in a different congregation. Maybe they're in a different denomination. We must still have a kind of affection for them. They are with us even though they are separated from us geographically, ecclesiastically. And one grievous reason, I'll come back to this as we think on factionalism, and one thing that really provokes it, uh, and when we try to downplay the service of others in the name of Christ, is actually rather chilling. Uh, The Bible shows us that we can envy their work, and we can want all the glory for ourselves or for the glory of our particular branch of the church. Numbers 11, as I alluded to before, is the Old Testament counterpart to our text. Two men, Eldad and Medad, began to prophesy. And Joshua, who usually comes off really well in the scripture, but proving that no man is beyond reproach, um, beyond being rebuked, rather, we find here that uh, Joshua had the same reaction. He said, my Lord Moses, what are the next words? Forbid them. Forbid them. Stop them from prophesying. Do you remember what Moses' response was? Envious thou for my sake. Here's the, the question. Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit upon them? You can imagine, you can imagine what Moses is saying. Joshua, are you grieved that others have been given gifts and graces from God? Are you grieved at the gifts and graces of these men, that there isn't a monopoly on the Spirit of God? Should we not rejoice, Joshua, that the Word of God is going forth from them instead? Should we not rejoice that the Word of God, that God is speaking His mind through them? What is the heart of Moses' ministry? More. More ministry, Lord. We need more ministry. Give us more men. Now, I'll... Maybe I'll preempt some of the caution here. This is not a text to allow men to take the ministry without ordination or anything like that. But this is a text that teaches us to not forbid the work God does in true men of God who are truly preaching the word of God. Let's return then back to Christ's disciples. Before they sought to stop the man, should they not have remembered their Bible and what Moses said? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them? Should they not have recognized the spirit at work in this man and not forbade him? When we recognize, right, that uh, a a group, a minister, is preaching the word of God faithfully, the gospel that proclaims damnation to those outside of Christ, but salvation in Christ only, and we see men converted to turn to the living God? Are they for us? Yes. Are they against us? No. And we're not to forbid that work of God in them. Where Christ is proclaimed, we are to say, these brethren are with us. And we can forget that the role of the church is this, to glorify her Lord and Savior. And not to glorify herself, not to glorify ourselves, not to glorify our ministers and elders. The Bible says in all things Christ must have the preeminence. 
And where Christ is gaining the preeminence, we are to see those as men who are with us and not against us. And as I was thinking on this, I was reminded of perhaps some of the most challenging words that Paul gives in Philippians 1, 15 through 18. And you can turn there if you wish, I will read it. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Here's the question. Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now, if you meditate on this text, you find how truly remarkable the apostles' words are, and they're worthy to be remembered. He said, some preach Christ, but out of contention to do what to the apostle Paul? To harm him, to afflict him. Yet what did Paul do even knowing that? He rejoiced. Why? Because it is Christ who is gaining the glory. Because Christ was being preached. And that is what Paul was interested in. Christ and his gospel being preached up. And so whenever Christ is preached, we are to rejoice. We are to rejoice over that and not forbid it. And so we find the heart of Christ in his servants Moses and Paul. And that is meant to be our own heart as well. To rejoice wherever the gospel is preached of a truth. When we see imperfect men proclaiming the gospel and we see men turn from darkness to the wonderful light of Christ. When we see men renouncing their sin and turning to holiness, we are to rejoice in that fact, regardless of the imperfections, because Christ has been lifted up. Even if they do it out of strife and contention. This is a dying of self, isn't it? Isn't this the view of John the Baptist when he saw Christ preaching and his own ministry coming to a close? He said, I must decrease. Why? Because he must increase. Or the way he put it, right? He must increase and I must decrease. In all things, the believer says Christ must have the preeminence, even if it comes with a diminishment of ourself. And so the gospel of Christ being proclaimed must remain paramount and above all to us, it must be our joy. Not our name, not the name of the Dallas RPC, not the name of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, but Christ and his gospel. This impacts how we view church planting, doesn't it? Right? Uh, we are not to go uh, typically where there are other true gospel churches. We have an agreement with NAPARC that we will talk with them first before planting a church. A golden comity agreement is what that's called. Uh, when two like-minded, uh, when another like-minded denomination came into the area, two of their ministers came to me and asked, would you be okay if we planted a church here uh, about, and it was really quite far, 45 minutes or so away. And they said, out of Christian um, grace, if you will uh, 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 not want us here, we will not come and plant. And that's gracious of them. I appreciate their courtesy. But really, is there any answer that can be given but yes? You must plant another church 
because it's not the Dallas RPC. You know, the flesh and Satan will say things like this. It'll come at the expense of your church, another psalm singing church, right? But is it? Is it our church? It's Christ's church. And he will dispose of it as he sees. And not only that, Christ says that such brethren are not only not against us, but they are for us. And in fact, the church will be strengthened if we believe that other churches ought to be planted because they are for Christ. Now, all that said, even in Christ's rebuke of John, I want you to see something quite precious. You know, the Puritans were great. They could preach 10-part sermon series on one word. And there's this one word here that is quite precious to us, and it's the word us. Us. What does that little word signify to you, believer, when Jesus says us? Is it not that Jesus, even with all our stumbling, even with all of our faults, even when we exercise zeal without knowledge, he does not disavow us. He still counts us as with him, still in union with him. In the book of Hebrews, as we uh, heard preaching on it from its second chapter, what did we read? These precious words that ought to be emblazoned in our heart. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. What a thing it is. The master delivers a stinging rebuke to his disciples, but he doesn't say you. He says us. He does not disavow them. He says, I am still in union with you. I am still yours and you are still mine. He doesn't say you are not a part of me anymore because of your schismatic ways. He says instead, I will now sanctify you with my rebuke. Right? He is the sanctifier in Hebrews 2. And we are they being sanctified. And we are all of one. What a great truth that is to the children of God that we are one with the great sanctifier and that when he rebukes us out of the word of God, he is growing us to be more like him. He is not casting us away from him. And this is what we need to embrace as the children of God. When the Lord rebukes us, he doesn't disavow us, but it is demonstrating that he who sanctifies and they being sanctified are actually united together. This union Christ shares with all true believers is found in the word us. And so it goes beyond then our individual communion here. And that's what the communion of the saints teaches us and comes from. That Jesus as head of the body, all saints are united to him. And we share together in a mutual love and care for each other because we are truly united to Christ. We are an us together under Christ. And this is the basis of our mutual love and care. It's not denominations or factions. The basis is found in Christ, that we are members of his spiritual body all together. That man who cast out demons, you, me, the apostles who are now deceased and in heaven, we all are one in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There are how many bodies? There is one body, 
and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Every believer is part of Christ's body. We deal with every believer in, as the apostle says, lowliness, meekness, and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, even with their faults and failings, and they with our own faults and failings, seeking unity where possible. And so Paul will say in Philippians 4, salute every saint in Christ Jesus. Some saints? No, every saint in Christ Jesus. We must recover the doctrine of the communion of saints, beloved. Our confession teaches that all saints are united to one another in love. And I have two paragraphs out of the Confession of Faith 26 of communion of saints. You can look at it later, and it's a very searching portion of our confession. You can look at the scripture proofs for it, and it will greatly convict you. We have an obligation, the Bible teaches, to love every true believer. That is a duty that we have, no matter their sanctification level or their understanding of the word of God. And if they need to know the way of God more perfectly, and many do, we remember how Aquila and Priscilla interacted with Apollos. They took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. His doctrine of baptism, you remember, was way off. They took him, his sacramentology then was way off. So how do we deal with a brother or a sister like that? We deal with them the same way. We explain and expound the way of God more perfectly to them. We become iron sharpening iron, speaking, as we will hear later, the truth in love. All that to say, brethren, being schismatic is a great and tremendous sin. If you think of why it's great and it's a tremendous evil, think of what it would do if you think, what does the word schism even mean? It means like a rending. It means a tearing. And if you think of one body of Christ, schism then rends the body of Christ. It's a terrible evil and blight on the church. And it is also very natural for the flesh. If men like Joshua and John can demonstrate it, you and I can demonstrate it as well. But also for your encouragement, as you consider union with Christ, you can observe how a man can be changed and sanctified. One of the things that we love to do is we look at the disciples early in their ministry, and then you look at the disciples as they write their epistles. And you remember John. You don't remember John as a schismatic, do you, anymore? You you remember him as the apostle of love. What a change was wrought by the one who sanctifies his body. Where did that work come from? It comes from union with Jesus, right? In the next text, he's going to want to burn a village. But we read this text in our yes, uh, last Lord's Day's New Testament morning reading in 1 John chapter 3. He would write later, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is the sanctifying work the Lord can do in a man, brother and sister. This is what Jesus Christ does in his body. 
John is almost unrecognizable from the man that he was early in his ministry. And what can we account for that? For is it not the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so, believer, for your encouragement, when the word rebukes you, you must hold on to this hope that the Lord will sanctify you, that the Lord can do this thing in you. Not only does he forgive your sins, he can change you as you are united to him. He is constantly supplying you with grace that you might turn from sin. You might turn from the sin of schism, from the sin of pride. John Newton, I'm quoting an Anglican here as a Presbyterian. John Newton said it quite profoundly. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Those are remarkable words that sum up the doctrine well. Take rebuke from Christ in his word. Ask for sanctifying grace and remember that he doesn't disavow you. You are one with him. He speaks of you as us that you are really and truly united to him by the Spirit. That said, not everyone who claims to be Christ's is truly for us. We must be discerning. So let's consider our final heading, which is caution. So if we have seen the exhortation of Christ to not draw the circle too close, what is the opposite problem we can run into, which is a widening of the net far too far, and supporting not only those who are unbelievers, right, and and doing works with them like the the Muslim or or the Buddhist uh, to join with them, but also we can widen the net too far and support all those who claim to be Christians, a kind of false ecumenism. Jesus gives a complimentary saying in Luke 11.23 to help you. He that is not with me is against me. So that is the compliment here, right? And he that gathereth not with me scatters. He that is not with Jesus is against him. And in context, he said it uh, to those in Israel who blasphemed him, blasphemously saying, Jesus cast out devils through Beelzebub. What an interesting, I think, counterpart, isn't it, to this text, where a man in the name of Christ casts out demons and is rebuked, and Jesus casting out demons in the name of God, in his own name, really, is casting out devils, and they are calling him one who is doing so through the devil. Rather complimentary on many fronts. But those men who said that were not with him. They were against him, and they were against his church. And these were very religious men who professed faith in Jehovah. Uh, You can say then that there's a sense that even in the visible church, there are those who will claim the name of the triune God, and actually be against Christ, and to be against his church. Just because, and we must be mindful of this, a man or woman calls himself a Christian or herself a Christian, does not mean they are for Christ. These are ones to be wary of, and also we must contend against. What do many so-called Christians do today? They deny the Bible is the very word of God. Or they will say, you know, some parts here are just cultural in nature. What are they doing? They're denying the word of God. They're denying Christ. They will create a Christ that is of their own liking and of their own imaging. 
They will, some of them, deny that Jesus is God, and they will call themselves Christians. When the two cultists come to your door, they will say, I am a Christian. But they will deny the divinity of Christ. Is this person a Christian? No, they are not. You cannot pitch in with the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness. There are others who deny Christ's um, virgin conception, that he was born of a virgin and was sinless. They deny Christ. Many deny the gospel, that we are all of us sinners, and grace, not works, is what saves us alone. They are against Christ. They don't gather with Christ. They're actually scattering. And so they are actually against him. And they are against the true church. And we can have nothing to do with these kinds of men and their so-called denominations. Can you support, can I support the work of the papacy when they deny the gospel? No. Can we support the work of liberal Presbyterians who deny the truth of the word and inerrancy and infallibility of the word. No. Can we support the work of Unitarians, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses, or whatever other cult is the latest flavor of the day? No, we cannot. All these groups and others, too, are against Christ, even if they claim Christ in some manner. Yes, Paul said he would rejoice whenever Christ was truly preached, yes, but he had a very different tone when it came to those who would deny the gospel. Galatians 1, 8 through 9, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be what? Accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. And he says it twice, in case it didn't sink in once. So we cannot cooperate with those that deny Christ, though they may claim to be Christians, whether they they deny the gospel or the person of Christ himself. They are not with him, they are against him. And so they are against his body, every true believer. They do not gather with him. Instead, they make Uh, those that they gather twice the child of hell that they are. That is not loving. It is not right to do anything with them. You know, I will gladly join the Baptist who preaches Christ and his gospel at the abortion mill. Uh, We have invited a Baptist minister to preach in the open air with us. That is not the problem. But I will not associate with a Roman Catholic in the same places for they are not for Christ. They go with the rosary, seeking Mary's intercession, and not Jesus's. And that's not a kind of bigotry to say, I won't associate with them. They are coming with another gospel. That's the problem. And if they do lure somebody out of the abortion mill and make them uh, pray now to Mary, they are making them twice the child of hell that they are themselves. And that's the problem. The danger is not recognizing the nun at the abortion mill and the woman that goes in to have an abortion have the very same need. They need the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. A gospel that proclaims a free and full pardon of all sin by the life and death of Christ, who is so gracious 
That simply when believing on the Lord, even the sin of murdering your own child can be forgiven by the blood of God's son, even if you have murdered your own. That is the gospel, not faith and works. Now go do some more works to earn your salvation. That is the Roman Catholic conception. That is no gospel at all. That is not good news. And that's why you cannot see them as co-laborers. And the gospel is so expansive that it can truly forgive a woman or a man who uh, counts Mary as a co-redemptrix if she will put aside or he will put aside Mary and go to Christ only. And that is what we proclaim to both the Roman Catholic and the woman who has gotten an abortion. What you need to understand, child of God, is that a very religious person can be very damned, even naming Christ. And you must know that yourself, friend. You cannot rest in saying you are here at church today. Your only rest can be in Christ. What did Mar, uh, Paul preach at Mars Hill? I perceive that you are very what? Religious. Yet he had to preach the gospel to them. Without this gospel of Christ and him crucified, you cannot be saved. Religion without Jesus and his gospel does not save. And so friend, if you are very religious, but you're also very much without Christ and very much not resting in Christ only and not thinking that you have anything to add, which will be the substance of the sermon tonight, you must believe on him fully now and be saved because you have not been until now. He holds himself forth in this text. He says, you can be one with me through faith. And if you are one with him, you will never, ever be lost. He implores all of you, be one with me, be united to me, the spirit working through faith, and I will save you to the uttermost. Otherwise, your sins remain on you and you will die in your sin. And that's a terrible thing to consider friend. Well, if those are those we are not to pitch in with, how do we conduct ourselves with true brethren? True brethren, we believe, are in error. Those we believe have a true interest in Christ, but are wrong in some doctrine or another. There is a reason why currently in this time there are denominations. Let's not, let's not get away from that fact. There's a reason that I'm not a Baptist. I believe children of the covenant are to be baptized. There's a reason I'm Reformed Presbyterian. It's because I believe the word of God tells us to sing the Psalms exclusively. There are lots of reasons why denominations exist amongst true believers at this time. But we need to understand how to interact with those in other branches of Christ's church. And this is an area where we need great wisdom from the Lord. The general rule, though, for you, without this becoming a two-hour sermon, is that we can enjoy fellowship with them uh, in many ways, even co-laboring for the sake of the gospel, but we don't join in unscriptural practices that we, our conscience, believes uh, that because our conscience has to be bound to the word of God and the word of God only. And so I don't believe when the Baptist minister tells me, Ram, you are in sin for baptizing babies. I go, I know you love me, brother. And I know that you believe that's what the word of God uh, teaches, but I don't believe that at all. Do I believe you don't love me? No. And when I say, brother, you ought to, it's a grave sin to not, to not baptize your children. 
I would hope the man would say, I know you love me. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, That's not the issue, but I disagree. Let's search the scripture together. That's the way that we ought to conduct ourselves. It's not that we hate each other because our practices are different, but we must exhort one another in love, speaking the truth in love, to go to the scripture and not to join in in the things that we believe are unbiblical. For instance, here's an application for myself. I do believe that God only wants me to sing the Psalms exclusively. When I go and worship in another congregation that has man-made compositions, I stand very respectfully. I open their hymnal and I don't say a word, but I'm very respectful. And the brethren there ought to know that I love them, even though I disagree with their practice. I love my brethren, but I will not participate in things that I don't, I believe the Lord does not want and has not called for. And will I forbid their service to the Lord? No. One older minister in our denomination, he has this wonderful practice where when he travels and he does this kind of thing, he always comes and meets with the minister afterward and he explains those things that he believes out of the scripture this man may never have heard. And he says, well, this is why we do this in the Reformed Presbyterian Church. This is why we do this. And out of love, he speaks the truth to them. And many have been convicted of things that they were not doing in the service of the Lord. And I would trust that a brother who would look on my own practice would do the same for me. Anyhow, we need to realize we can love brethren and not partake of unscriptural practices and respectfully work on differences, not seeing them as against us, but for us. And we are iron sharpening iron. We are, as a practical matter, seeking to do that with the ARP brethren as we seek to come together. We were once one denomination uh, hundreds of years ago, and we are seeking, this is the Lord, well, we know it's the Lord's will that we come together, but we are asking, how may he do it? We cannot unite our denominations yet, but we are working uh, for it, according to Ephesians 4. Listen to this. Why does he give ministers uh, and prophets and apostles and all the gifts he gives to his church? Ephesians 4 says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Those are the ones that we have to be aware of, not just the papists, not just the, the cultists, even those with another gospel who claim to be reformed, federal vision, new perspective on Paul, those kinds of things. But what does he direct us to do? Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love, we are to be united to Christ together and seek the unity of the faith based not on false ecumenism, but based on the truth. Where is that found? The word of God. Such that all of us, when we come, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, whatever we are, we open the scripture and say, brother, let us now discover the will of God for his church. And let us conform ourselves and reform ourselves according to the word of God. We call ourselves reformed. Why? Because we are reformed according to the word, the word of the living God. Let me end on a historical note for your encouragement. Another Anglican, this is not on purpose, Another Anglican um, word from John Newton, uh, who had a lifelong friendship with a Baptist minister, John Ryland Jr. He gave good counsel his whole life 
to this young minister. He was young when he began, and he wrote, Newton did, until the very end of his life. These letters are very edifying. They're found, uh, Banner of Truth published them in the volume called Wise Counsel. Very helpful for those in ministry. Throughout his entire life, even though Ryland took lots of counsel from Newton, he never ceased to be a Baptist, even as they debated the matters before them. Uh, And Newton, near the end of the book, at the end of his life, in one of his final letters, he said to Ryland, recognizing that they will never be in the same denomination, he said, I think I love you no less than I should if you were an Episcopalian. And I think that's really the heart of Christian love, is that regardless when one names the name of Christ, we do not love them any more when they become Reformed Presbyterian. And we don't love them any less if they are not. Perhaps better said by our Lord, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Our distinctions are very important. They're very real. We have them based on our truth of the word of God. But we are also to rejoice whenever the truth of Christ is proclaimed by the Spirit of the Lord, remembering that those who are not against us are in fact for us, united to Christ, and ourselves to Christ most of all. Amen. Let us arise now for prayer.